Ultimate Escape is a family-friendly ministry that addresses sexuality. Some episodes may contain sensitive terms and subject matter, especially for younger children. Welcome to the Ultimate Escape Podcast. I'm David Chenault. The Ultimate Escape Podcast is a project of Ultimate Escape, a faith-based organization dedicated to helping teenagers and adults deal with sexual issues from a God-centered perspective. The organization was founded by Holly and Steve Holliday. You can find all the details about them and the organization at their website at ultimateescape.org. Now, this is the very first edition of the podcast. We're just starting this project out, and we're glad that you're along for the journey. Now, we have lots of ideas and plans for the podcast going forward, but more than anything, we hope to begin a dialogue between teenagers and parents, school teachers and ministry leaders that opens the door to talking about truth in sexuality, truth that we feel brings freedom. And frankly, that's why we call it Ultimate Escape. Thanks for being a part of it. Now, because this is the very first edition of the podcast, we're doing things a little bit different right at the start. We have about four separate podcasts that kind of give the background of Ultimate Escape. Steve's story, Holly's story, their story together and their life together, and the beginning of the ministry of Ultimate Escape. And so we're going to put all of those podcasts on the website at one time. You can go through those and listen to them in any order, really, that you would like, and learn all of the background to Ultimate Escape. And then... Week by week, we'll be adding new podcasts on different topics, some of them very serious, some of them more lighthearted, some of them just simply addressing the issues that we all need to talk about concerning sexuality. Now, we want to add this as well. Ultimate Escape is a family-friendly ministry, one designed to begin a dialogue between children and their parents addressing the topic of sexuality. And as such, we will be using terms that you as a student or you as a parent may not always have been comfortable using in front of each other, but we feel like it is imperative to talk about the topics that we'll discuss on this podcast. But at the same time, we want to let parents know that there may be some sensitive material, especially for very young children. And we encourage you to listen ahead of time before you share these podcasts with everyone in your family. So with that, let's begin. This is the very first edition of the podcast, and so we're going to start with Steve Holliday, the founder of Ultimate Escape, his story, his struggles that brought him down the journey of faith to the point of beginning Ultimate Escape. So we were Steve Holliday. Hello. How are you today? Hey, I'm good. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about um, uh, your involvement and kind of where you came from and where do you want to start? I grew up in a family that God was extremely important. I joke sometimes and say that, you know, we ended up at church all the time. Um, You know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we're we're just taken for granted. You know you're going to be at church then. And every once in a while, we just pull into the church parking lot and sit for a little while because we just needed a good dose. uh, Obviously, I say that just kidding, but uh, God was very important. And so pleasing God was always an important thing. You know, little Steve always wanted to do the right thing. So I'd line up my stuffed animals, and we'd play church. You know, I'd lead singing. I'd, I'd pass out the communion, little grape juice. Um, yeah, yeah, I used to do that. Well, yeah, we all did. I did that from my uh, from the from the fireplace, stand up on top of the fireplace and lead songs. Right. So that you know that was childhood for me. Um, and and on the outside, everything looked just like it should, uh, but on the inside, you know, there was this um, there was this darkness, this shame, this secrecy around sexuality. Uh, the door to that world had opened very early in my life, and uh, really nobody talked about it. And so I had all these these thoughts. Um, you know, I had compulsive behaviors that I didn't understand. Uh, 
And at that time, you know, it was just shame. You know, there was no knowledge of, hey, this is wrong or God doesn't uh, want this in my life. It was just, hey, this this is secret. Um, can't talk about this. Um, don't want anybody to find out. It just, it just feels bad. Uh, so those earliest memories include this this huge amount of shame. So I'm, you know, four or five years old. So, you know, eventually kindergarten comes, you know, school comes. For other people on the outside looking at Steve would have thought, man, this is like this perfect Christian little boy. And on the inside, uh, I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm disgusting. Nobody wants me. Um, had situations, you know, as a, as a small child where peers gave this message of, hey, we don't like Steve. Matter of fact, there was one uh, very crystallized in my memory as if it were yesterday uh, where I walked over to the next door neighbor's house and knocked on the door. Uh, there was a, a girl my age that wanted to see if she could come out and play. And her older brother, who I'd assume was probably middle school, high school age, answered the door. And he looked at me and he said, go away. We don't want you. And he shut the door. Uh, now, I don't know, you know, was he trying to be funny? Was that really what he felt? I have no idea. I know how I, you know, the meaning that I gave to mm. that. And that was nobody wants Steve. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so that, that core belief, you know, it feels like nobody wants me. I mean, I can look in my life and man, that got, you know, whether that was the very first time, who knows, but uh, that certainly either planted or reinforced that belief. So, you know, there's a lot of Steve doesn't feel good about Steve on the inside and on the outside, you know, nobody would have had any idea. Um, but that set up my story for this dark cloud of shame and secrecy around sexuality. Mm. Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, sexual intercourse. I just, just the whole aspect of, uh, of sexuality. So I'm, you know, growing up um, elementary school, middle school, and, you know, compulsive sexual behavior, basically masturbation. Uh, and obsessive fantasy thoughts are, are just a daily part of my life. And around that time, I started to connect some guilt with that because there had been enough teaching just in uh, from a theology, spiritual standpoint uh, that I was connecting dots and recognizing, hey, this, you know, this is not something that God is pleased with. Matter of fact, I can remember reading an excerpt from a Dobson book, and I don't know which one it would have been. It may have been like preparing for adolescence. But uh, the phrase that stuck in my head as a 12, 13-year-old was, masturbation has no business in the life of a Christian teenager. Now, I'm not saying that you know that's right or wrong theology. I'm just saying I read that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that had a huge impact on me because that was just this, uh, this additional layer of guilt. The shame had always been there. But now it's, hey, I'm doing something wrong and, and I'm sinning. I'm, I'm displeasing God. Mm. Fast forward a few more years, and I'm at a, a church camp. And first night of camp, I'm in my top bunk, and I wake up. It's probably you know, 12, 31 o'clock in the morning, but a big thunderstorm had come, and there apparently was a leak in the roof above my bunk because I wake up, my sleeping bag is soaking wet, and you're just drip, drip, drip coming in. Uh, and I don't want to wake anybody up and bother them. You know, Everybody else in the cabin's asleep. And again, that's a, that's a familiar theme in Steve's life. I'm just a bother. Um, and so I don't want to do anything that bothers anybody. So I lay there for a while, not knowing what to do. I finally get up, get down off the bunk and wake up the youth minister who's sleeping in the bunk below me. And I said, you know, there's a leak in the roof and my, my sleeping bag's wet. What should I do? And he says, well, you can just sleep with me tonight. Now here I am, this awkward 16 year old. I just want a place to lay down and go to sleep. The only thing on my mind. 
And obviously he had some ulterior motives when he said, hey, you can sleep with mm-hmm. me. And what happened over the next 30, 45 minutes uh, should never happen to anyone, but it happened to me. Uh, and so I woke up the next morning and just pretended it didn't happen. Um, had to sit at that youth minister's table all week long, mm-hmm. all three meals, uh, and just pretended like nothing happened. Uh, and I didn't talk to anybody about that event for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it it instantly had an effect because there were behaviors uh, that, that um, followed on the, in the trail of that. Every night, I couldn't go to sleep at night without putting my hands in a protective uh, position over my groin. Uh, and, you know, as a therapist now, I often use the term behavior as a voice. And I look back in hindsight and I say, okay, that behavior had a voice. That behavior said, don't touch me. I don't want to be touched. Mm. Uh, I didn't understand that at 16. But um, that habit of I can't fall asleep unless my hands are in that position, you know, that, that took off and that lasted way into adulthood. So on the outside, here's this you know high school student that everybody who knows me uh, thinks, hey, this guy's just great. Matter of fact, I had friends who would come to me and say, my mom, I think of one guy in particular, my mom just says she wishes I was more like you. When I heard that, I thought if your mom had any clue, she would never say something like that. Mm. And that just shows the disconnect. You know, what people saw externally mm. was so different than how I felt about myself internally because I could never see past the sexual stuff. Um, hey, you know, I look back now and say, hey, what? You know, young Steve, there's a lot of good stuff about him. At the time, I didn't see any of that. All I saw was the negative. So, you know, we continue on and uh, eventually graduate from high school, head off to college. And up to this point, you know, my struggle has been all mental and, and behavior with self. But several years into college, and I'm going to school in this, you know, small Christian school in West Kentucky or Western Tennessee, and a video store pops up. Now, I'd never had access to a video player. And all of a sudden, I've got a roommate who has a VCR and a TV, and he goes home about every weekend. So I'm in my room with a TV and a VCR and nobody else. I go to this video store just to, just to go get a movie, I mean, just a normal movie. I walk in, and you know, within a few minutes, it's obvious, hey, there are movies here I've never heard of. <laughs> you know, and and you know, didn't know they existed. Mm. And this is not the room in the back. You know, this is not that the triple X, you know, you must be 21 or whatever to, to right, enter. Right. Uh, this is just out there on the shelf. But I thought, man, the, the cover looks kind of interesting. So I picked this cover up, look on the back. And, um, you know, just from the few pictures on the cover, I thought, hey, this might be kind of fun to watch. Yeah. So, I'm, you know, heart's racing. And I'm looking around because, you know, this is a small town and there's only one video store as far as I know. And, you know, other students from the university come in and the guy behind the counter, you know, I recognize him from school. I'm thinking, man, I can't, I can't take this movie up there and, and rent this thing. So I just went, I, you know, eventually picked out a normal movie and, you know, went and watched it that night. But Saturday, the next day I went back and that day, you know, of course I'd had, you know, all night this, this uh, idea of getting one of those movies had had time to grow. Mm. Uh, so I went back the next day and I picked up a few and took them back and watched them. And, oh, it's, you know, a whole another layer of this uh, struggle of guilt and shame. And I do something that I feel bad about, but I do it anyway. And it just had a whole other layer now mm. uh, because the, the videos, you know, mm. are, are notch up. You mm. know, one of the things about addiction uh, is tolerance. Uh, what What was enough to be exciting last time, it may not be enough this time. And so now it's, uh, hey, just 
uh, fantasizing that that's not enough anymore. Now I need to be able to put something in and watch it. Mm. Um, and it was cyclical. You know, I'd, I'd go um, several weeks and not do that. I may go a month or so and not do that. And then it would just be a Friday, Saturday, you know, all consuming. And it, the insanity, you know, I'm sitting here talking about this and, you know, we're, we're sitting here having a conversation. Right. Uh, and, and I don't want anybody who's listening to think, oh, I th- that's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, I'm painfully aware of how wrong uh, the consequences, you know, the, the road this led down. Mm. Uh, but at the time, it was this vicious struggle of I know this is not right. And the sane part of Steve doesn't want to have anything to do with this. Mm-hmm. But the addiction part um, is in control. Mm. And when it gets big enough, I lost the ability to say no once it got to that level. Mm. Um, now, don't take that too far. I'm not saying that, you know, I had, I, you know, had no moral culpability and, you know, I wasn't responsible for my actions. I'm saying that's the nature of addiction. Addiction, you know, once that monster gets big, no amount of willpower is going to conquer it. Uh, it, it takes something more than that. So, is that something that truly people outside the world of addiction can't understand or have a difficult time understanding? I, I, I meet a lot of people who have a hard time wrapping their brain around that. You know, some people from a theology standpoint just, well, you know, it's just wrong. You see, you just shouldn't do it, mm. uh, and it's just that cut and dry. And I imagine if people stopped and put whatever their escape behavior, uh, put that in the picture, and maybe they could understand that a little bit better. Right. Um, so yeah, when, you know, we talk about addiction and, you know, people who have their own journey with addiction understand that principle, you know, painfully well, uh, people who have no experience may just look at that word addiction and say, it's an excuse. You know, you just, it's, it's sinful. You're just using that word addiction to make it sound better. Right. Uh, and I, I would very much disagree with that perspective, but I know there are people who feel that way. Is that someone who's outside the realm of addiction or who's someone who's unexamined their own life to say there may be something working in their own life? I think it can be both. <laughs> I think sometimes that denial, you right. know, hey, um, what's the phrase I'm looking for? I think thou dost protest too much. Yeah. Right. Uh, I have run across a number of people who uh, love to scream and shake their finger and mm. uh, point out how bad somebody else is, mm-hmm. only to find out that, ah, there's a reason why you have so much hatred and disdain for that individual. Right, yeah. right, right. Matter of fact, I think I'm kind of jumping ahead here. This may be more like popcorn today, but um, had one individual who was very, very upset at an Ultimate Escape presentation and created a lot of um, a lot of problems in the church where I had done that presentation. Mm. Uh, and then come to find out a few years later that his secret came out and he was hiding a porn struggle. Wow. Um, so, you know, again, I always go back when somebody screams and... Uh, jumps up and down a little too much. You're stepping on their toes. Yeah, well, there's probably a little something behind <laughs> right, that. Right. But uh, anyway, it, uh, this uh, this new layer of of behavior hits in, and the, here's the insanity of it. Um, I would obsess about what movies I might be able to find, and then I would go to the video store. Typically, it's Friday because my roommate would leave on Friday, and and you know within an hour of him leaving town, I'm. Right. Heading, heading to the store. Uh, and I'd get a stack. Sometimes I literally would get four or five videos and I would bring them back to the dorm room and I'd put one in, fast forward it, find a scene and act out. And then guilt would just be enormous. Mm. And I would literally take that entire stack back. Now, it hadn't been an hour since I left that video store. 
Um, and I always wonder what the people who work behind the counter thought. I mean, obviously, I couldn't go watch five movies in an hour. Right. So they had to know something's going on here. Um, but then I would go back the next day. And often I'd rent some of those exact same movies that I hadn't watched. Mm-hmm. And I'd do the exact same thing. I don't know how many times I've rented movies and never watched them. Mm. Um, it's that compulsion of I, I can't not do this. But then once I do, I feel so bad. Mm. It's like, what can I do to, to earn some forgiveness here or, mm-hmm. or prove to God that I'm really sorry for what I just did? And, and that cycle, is, it's insane. But that's the nature of the beast. You know, addiction is not a... Uh, makes good logical sense. Sure, uh, it's, it's something way deeper than that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So that that lasted through college uh, and into young adulthood. Uh, matter of fact, that the video piece was um, was there up until eventually recovery uh, began, and then um, several years after I graduated, I got back into youth ministry, and was at a, a church where the internet. The first time I ever had uh, computer access with internet access. And it didn't take but a few weeks to start to figure out how to use a search engine. And if you type in this word, and I remember sitting in my office thinking, I wonder if I type this, what will happen? And so I typed it in and boom, all kinds of results come back. And uh, I distinctly remember having that thought, wait a minute, if it's on the Internet, that means other people have the same kind of thoughts that I do. Because I had always thought I was the only person on the planet. Nobody else in the world thinks the kinds of things that I think. Mm-hmm. Um, is, that a, is, that a common, is that a common thread? I find a lot of people believe they're the only one. They're the only one who does this. They're the only one who struggles with that. Um, and especially around sexual addiction. I think, mm-hmm. you know, again, the isolation, the shame, because we don't talk about it. And most people grow up um, believing they're the only one who has this particular struggle. Um, so it was like a kid in the candy store on, you know, on one hand, mm. it's like, wow, all this and it's free and it, it's out there. Uh, and the other side of that was the, the burden of now it just makes the struggle even worse because, you know, whereas at least before I had to go to a store somewhere and rent a video. Mm. Now, every single day I go to work, I have to sit in front of this computer screen with that struggle of I, the same part of me doesn't want to do this. Um, but then there's that other piece inside that's gnawing, constantly knowing, hey, you could, hey, you. So, you know, put in the spiritual lens, there's the voice of the enemy right there, just constantly reminding, mm. hey, it's out there. All you got to do is type in and there you go. And again, same same cycle. I'd go for months without doing that and I'd be consumed for hours. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, what seemed to me like 15 minutes would turn out to be an entire afternoon mm. of I'm sitting there, you know, wasting that, looking at stuff on the Internet. Eventually, I got to a point in that setting where I felt so bad about it. I thought, I've got to get this thing out of here. I can't continue to have this Internet access. This is just, it's killing me. Uh, so I left town to go on a youth mission trip one summer. I knew I was going to be gone for a week. I just wrote a note to another minister at the church that said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. He just quoted the, the verse. Mm-hmm. said, when I return from this trip, please have the Internet out of my office. Left that note for the other guy. Left town, when I came back, no internet. Nobody ever said a word. No questions, nothing. Honored honored my request, and that was it. Mm. Now, in hindsight, looking back, you know, again, the same part of me thinks, man, I wish somebody had just sat down and said, hey, let's talk. Talk to me about this note. What's going on here? Yeah. 
Um, you know, if they'd approached that in a healthy way, you know, that, that could have taken years off of the struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really thankful at the time that nothing was said because it just allowed me to, to continue to go on about my business and not have to deal with it. Mm. But would have been a whole lot more helpful long term if the other had happened. Yeah. That was probably around 97, uh, summer of 97-ish. And uh, eventually moved to another church. Um, internet obviously was you know growing bigger and bigger, and email was a, a normal way of communication. And there was just no way to not mm. have internet access. And so this this whole thing came back. And then finally, in the spring of two thousand and two, um, I had enrolled in a counseling, an online counseling program. Mm. And again, a little bit of the backstory here. Uh, I'd always wanted to be a counselor. Now, I was in youth ministry, loved youth ministry, but wanted to add that to what I could do in working with young people. Mm-hmm. So in the back of my mind, I kind of always thought, hey, one of these days, I want to go back to school and get a degree in counseling and, and be able to counsel people as a minister. And I'd gone to a couple of conventions of American Association of Christian Counselors, the AACC. So I'd do that as my continuing ed option for the year. I'd go to an AACC convention and, you know, go to these presentations about counseling. And I'd been to a few about sexual addiction. Now, I had never put myself under that umbrella. I always thought, man, I got a really big struggle with lust. Mm. Um, You know, I probably struggle with lust more than any other person on the planet. But I'd never connected. Again, there's there's a lot of denial at place. Sure, sure. Absolutely. So I never connected that dot. But I decided I'm going to I'm going to start this process. So I enroll in this class, got this stack of videos, put the first video in. I watched the first session and I pick up the book to start doing my homework reading. And I'm on page one, page two. And around page three, I run across this paragraph that mentions, you know, a good counselor does their own work, you know, engages in their own healing Mm. so that they can be a more effective counselor in working with clients. Mm. Now, that's paraphrase, but that's pretty much what that Mm. couple of sentences said. I stopped reading right there, that paragraph. I closed the book. I got up out of my seat, put the book on the shelf, walked over to my computer and dropped the class. <laughs> At the time, I, I couldn't have told you anything about why did I just do that. Now, looking back in hindsight, you know, obviously, that it's a pretty obvious, say, the, the boy, that just triggered sure. all kinds of defense mechanisms and resistance and avoidance. And there we go. But no idea at the time. what? Not a clue. Wow. So that was January, February of '02, And within a few weeks, I had run across a, a ministry website for Bethesda workshops. Mm. Now, I had heard their director, Marnie, present at one of these AACC conventions on sexual addiction. Uh, so I was at least vaguely familiar with who she was and a little bit of information about you know the, the topic. But I run across their website, and on the website is a uh, sexual addiction screening test, SAST, with Dr. Patrick Carnes. So somewhere in the course of being on their website, I noticed that they have uh, these workshops and they have a role of a therapist observer. So people who are therapists can come and observe the workshop as part of their training you know, to, to be able to work with sexual addiction um, more competently. And so I pick up the phone and I call and say, hey, I'd like to come as a therapist observer. Now, mind you, my my one class that I had enrolled in, I already dropped. dropped. So I'm, I'm nowhere anywhere close to being a therapist. Uh, but I'm, again, looking in hindsight, hey, it's much safer to say, hey, I want to come as a therapist observer than, right. to, than to admit I got a big problem and I need some help and I, I need to come to your workshop. So I, Marnie is talking to me and she says, well, Steve, are you a therapist? And, uh, no, but I'd like to be one one day. 
And she was so kind. I said, well, Steve, normally we reserve those therapist observer roles for people who are actually therapists. <laughs> <laughs> but, but she said, well, if you decide you really want to do that at some point, you can call. We can talk about that. Yeah. So I hung up the phone. And I'm still on their website. And uh, I go back to that SAST and I just start answering the questions. I think there are like 22, 24 questions or so on that. And, you know, number one, yes, two, yes, and go on down the list. And about number seven or eight, I think all of them up to that point have been yes. Mm. And it's like the light goes on. Yeah. Bingo. Oh, this is my problem. Mm. So I finished, you know, finished taking the test. And I think there were were two that I answered no and pretty, and all the rest of them were yeses. Uh, so I, you know, look at my score, look on their you know, score comparison and, you know, you, you, uh, based on your score, you have a lot of things in common with people who struggle with sexual addiction, uh, something along those lines. Yeah. And so I picked up the phone I called right back. <laughs> it hadn't been 10 minutes, I'm sure. Marnie answered the phone again. I said, I, I need to register as a participant to this workshop. And she was, she was really nice. Now I have no idea what kind of laughter that they had <laughs> in their office after all this is right. over. But uh, she she was very kind. And in April of 2002, mm. I was in Nashville, Tennessee, attending Bethesda workshops. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I use the phrase life began. I mean, emotion bubbles up. You know, we're sitting here um, having this conversation in front of these microphones. And uh, there's just this enormous amount of emotion of, of gratefulness mm. uh, that comes up just thinking back about um, that experience. Because it completely changed my life. Yeah. Uh, and I connected dots and... All of a sudden, the, hey, whatever whatever happened back at age three, four that opened up this door of sexuality to my world, whatever that was, I'm connecting the dot um, of that puts me on this path, and that's why I'm, I struggle with the things that I do. Mm. Um, it's not that I'm this terrible, awful person, which is how I always viewed myself. And it's not that God just wants to spit every time he looks at me, which is how I felt about myself. Um, it makes sense. I'm not saying it, it was right or it was all okay. I'm just saying it makes sense because there's such a huge difference in understanding, oh, this is why I am the way that I am, or this is why I do the things or think the things that I do. Um, and being able to have something to hang that, hang that hat on of, oh, this is why was huge for me mm. uh, because it released so much of the shame. Uh, thinking I am just this messed up, horrible, broken, screwed up, you fill, fill in the blank with whatever term you want to use. Um, that's not accurate. Now, that's the that's the message that I I believed, and you know I swallowed that hook, line, and sinker. Uh, again, put the spiritual lens on, hey, the enemy had me at a really young age, uh, convincing me that I was bad, and it's not that I was a bad person. Do we get that? Uh, is that a common, I guess, also a common thread that uh, people say confuse the idea of uh, the reason why, the, the reasons why things happen with the concept of accepting uh, or excusing those actions? Yeah. And again, I, I would say that's a very common thing. I'd, I'd have to work a lot with clients and especially family members of clients around that. Hmm. Hey, looking for an understanding of why is not excuse making, it's understanding. Mm. So can we, you know, can we just shelve the, you're just trying to make excuses and recognize we're just trying to understand it. Uh, and then once we understand it, then we'll, we'll come back and say, okay, well, you know, where do we put responsibility and, you know, what am I responsible for? 
and what was beyond my control, but I've still got to deal with the aftermath. Right. Uh, because I look back in, in my life, and that's that's you know where I put myself. Uh, have, I certainly didn't stand in line in heaven and say, hey, I want to go to earth and, and have the sexual addiction problem. That, that's the struggle I want to have. Hmm. Um, I didn't ask for it, but I, I'm there. And so all I can do at this point is just deal with the aftermath and say, okay, wherever it came from, I just got to deal with the fact that it's there. Sure, um, sure. Because I have spent 33 years of life uh, running away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's a better thing to just recognize I got to deal with it. Now, this whole entire journey um, obviously uh, didn't happen in a vacuum. There's other people that are affected along the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, by the time uh, 2002, by the time you go off to the Bethesda uh, workshop, um, you're married at this point. I am. Uh, four get, kids. <laughs> married and four kids. And, uh, and, and again, that didn't happen without consequences. I mean, there weren't consequences no. of your actions uh, that were playing out in that, in that relationship as well. Yeah. And um, again, emotion starts to bubble up right now when you say that, because I think the cost, okay, the cost of my addiction, uh, it cost my wife big time. Uh, it cost my kids in ways that I may not even recognize you know, even today. I mean, some ways real, real easy to recognize, but in other ways it may not, you know, on some level there's a reputation and, and that goes two ways. There are some people who look at my journey and my recovery and I think have a layer of respect for, you know, he, he dealt with that. We, we respect that. There are other people who look and say, well, you know, what a horrible person. How could we ever, you know, respect him or look at him the same way? And that's their, that's their stuff, mm. um, whichever way they go on that. Well, especially uh, as a career, starting out as a career in, a, in youth ministry, mm-hmm. going into youth ministry after having a negative experience with a youth minister, mm-hmm. um, is that part of the motivation for doing what you did, you think? Or I mean, do you have any idea? Well, having the negative experience at age 16 mm-hmm. uh, with the sexual abuse by a youth minister made me hypersensitive to ever being in any kind of position with, with teenage guys anywhere around. And you know, on a deeper level, um, you know, the message inside of me was always, what are people thinking? Uh, people are going to think whatever you know that uh, that I'm trying to do something that I had no interest in doing whatsoever. Hmm. Uh, that, that's the self-talk on a level that I'm aware of. I wanted to obey God. I wanted to please God, um, and I was drawn to youth ministry. Um, you know, how can I affect my world? You know, what difference can I make in the world? Well, hey, if we can, you know, help young people understand God's plan for them, hmm. you know, that that makes a big difference in the world. And I think there's a layer of just when God created Steve, he, he put this, you know, love to work with people and you know, ministry. I mean, I think God put that in there. Sure. Because uh, even from, you know, 16, 17, um, man, youth ministry is, is what I want to do. And here I am at 48 and working with young people. It's a, it's a very specialized ministry. Right. But it still largely focuses on, you know, teens and young adults. Right. Uh, so here I am you know, all these years later. And I still find myself you know, primarily working with young people. Which I think, and, and you kind of touched on this, some people might disagree, but I think most people would agree those experiences, not only that whatever that is inside of you that says draws you to youth ministry, but that does set you up for your life experience that, hey, this is a perfect combination of how you can help people, how you can help young people 
throughout the rest of your life. Absolutely. And, you know, the the story of Ultimate Escape, you know, is, a, again, is another podcast, and people are, you know, encourage them to listen to that sure. one. Uh, but, yeah, there's there's no question. The background for me, wow, what what better preparation I, I, to, to do what I do? Sure. I, mean, I don't believe for a second that God caused those things to happen. I don't think God caused sex to be opened up into my world early. I don't think God caused this youth minister to do what he did. I think those happened outside of God's God's desired will. Mm. Now God's sovereign. So God you know, I'm not saying that God was you know had no ability to control those things. I'm saying I think he worked through them. Mm. Okay. People's free free choice results in a lot of bad stuff. Um, bad looking at it through human human eyes. God can turn all that stuff around and find good ways or, or make good to happen from it. Yeah. Uh, and it was several years into Ultimate Escape. Uh, I, I remember being at an event where I was speaking. Uh, I was in Fort Worth, Texas. And this would have been uh, probably around 2010. Um, and as I was sharing my story over that weekend, uh, the first time I can remember actually, and, and I, as I say this right now, the, the tears I'm, I'm you're about to experience, the first time in my life that I actually was able to say thank you God for the things that I've gone through Mm. Uh, because I can see how it helps me be a much more effective counselor and presenter Mm. uh, when we're talking about sensitive issues around sexuality Um, that having having gone through that journey and walked the recovery road that I think it gives me a very unique place uh, to to be able to minister from sure Um, but that was that was a lot of years after all that stuff happened and so I certainly wasn't there, you know, the day after. I wasn't saying, hey, thank you, God, that I got sexually abused. Right, right. Um, uh, eventually was able to get there. Yeah. How important is sharing that story? To me, it's very important. It's important because I know what it's like to be that 16-year-old kid um, and be in a place where nobody talks and wanting desperately to, to know something. Um, and not having the courage to, to ask, uh, not knowing who in the world would I ask. Man, if somebody had come to my church when I was 10 and talked about theology of sex and talked about issues like masturbation, uh, fantasy, lust, God's plan for sex, uh, wow, what a difference. And not, no guarantee, but certainly a lot more room for a difference hmm. that would have spared you know, my wife, would have spared my kids' heartache. So that's that's a lot of what drives what I do. Uh, I know the need. Mm. I know what it's like to live in that void. Right. Um, and it's not penance. It's not, hey, I, I need to, to do this and do this so that God will love me or accept me or forgive me. It, it's gratitude. Uh, wow, I know what God did in my life. And I know how big of a need there is for that to happen in other people's lives. Mm-hmm. And hey, if God can take the mess of my background... Mm and make something good come out of it, then glory to God, uh, because it'd be, a, it'd be a shame for there not to be something good that, that comes from all of that. Would you agree that um, perhaps dialogue doesn't always produce a solution, but a solution can't exist without dialogue taking place to begin with? Well, sounds like something I'd probably agree with. Yeah. That, uh, that that dialogue has to happen one way or the other. I, I think back and taking a piece from your story, back to the, the, the very first time, that little note that you wrote um, to the other youth minister or to the other minister in the, in the, uh, in the, in the building. Um, obviously, I think a lot of people come at it with that perspective and think, 
you know, the, the most caring thing I can do right now is to honor his wish and just not, not to bring it up. He obviously didn't want to talk about it. He did this at a certain reason, so I'm just going to. But again, with no dialogue, there's no even possibility for a, a real solution yeah. along the way. And I don't fault the guy for doing that. Sure, sure. You know, I mean, there, there's no animosity of, man, he should have. Not at all. Uh, just a, okay, on this side of recovery. Right. I'd like to look back and say, if if that was me, if somebody handed me that note, I'm, I'm a minister on staff and another minister hands me that note, uh, I'd like to think that it might be a better reaction to go to them in private and say, hey, let's talk. Uh, what's going on here? Yeah. Um, I guess that's a lesson I'm trying to say. The, the, the idea that, that dialogue, yeah. the talking is always a healthy thing to do. <laughs> and, and we don't, we, we, we. I think we often convince ourselves that that's not the case. We're honoring the other person by not doing mm-hmm. that. Um, but uh, even if it doesn't go anywhere, just an mm-hmm. opportunity for dialogue uh, and sharing your story. And I know that because I've experienced it before when people say, oh, well, you share too much. <laughs> like, you know what? I don't know that that's possible. <laughs> the more we can talk, the more, again, it may not always produce a solution. It may not always produce healing, mm-hmm. but um, but it, it, that can't, can't result without it. Yeah, and there are some healthy boundaries on you know where sure. to share. I mean, I don't go running out to the mailman and say, hey. Well, no, I do that. No, I have done that. No, <laughs> you know, I don't put that ad in the, in the you know, newspaper, but um, you know, we, we share our stories with people who – or safe. Now, wait a second. I have seen an ad in the newspaper for Ultimate Escape, so I think you have to rephrase, rephrase. Because that that does allow, and again, we've talked about Ultimate Escape, the whole story of Ultimate Escape is a different, a different podcast or different story. But um, but being able to do that in a wide format, in an open format, I mean, that that is a, an excellent way to be able to use for good what has happened in the past. Yeah, and I didn't take an ad out in the paper the uh, week I came back from Bethesda. <laughs> Um, and yeah, the, you know, the more we share our story, the more public that story becomes, you know, those boundaries become different. Mm. I I work with clients sometimes who, when they, when they first take that dive into recovery, I mean, they just want to go share it with the world. (laughs) And I get that. Mm. I know, you know, once the secret's out, that is so freeing. It's like, I can't believe I never told anybody this before because it feels so good to finally not be burdened with this secrecy. Uh, hey, I don't want to tell everybody who will listen to me. Sure. Uh, and, and somewhere there's a balance of um, keeping everything a guarded secret mm-hmm. and having no boundaries of I'm I'm telling anybody who will listen. Sure. Um, so, yeah, but I, I think the world is full of folks who you don't want to talk. We don't want you. We don't want you talking because it makes us uncomfortable because you're you're so free and, and open. Uh, and again, that says more about that person. Than it does about us. Yeah, I, I would, I would think. But your encouragement, someone listening to this, what's your what's your what's your suggestion? How do you start that journey of healing? Um, if you've been struggling with something like this your entire life, and and you're just you just don't know what to do with it, find somebody to talk to. Let me go back to to you emphasizing how important dialogue is. Uh, get the secret out. You know, that, that's step number one for me is kind of get the secret out. Uh, find somebody that I trust, who I believe will have my best interest at heart, and start talking. I appreciate you stopping by today. Thank you. Steve Holiday with the Ultimate Escape Organization. That's going to wrap it up for our very first edition of the podcast from Ultimate Escape. Don't forget, we have three other podcasts already on the website. Holly's Story, the story of Steve and Holly together, and how Ultimate Escape 
finally came about. We have those all for your listening enjoyment on our website, ultimateescape.org, or any of the podcast directories. You can pull those down as well. Now, we will begin adding new podcasts about once a week, so watch for those. Subscribe to our feed. And again, find more at ultimateescape.org. I'm David Chenault. Thanks for joining us on the Ultimate Escape Podcast.